بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير أما بعد الحمد لله This is lesson 61 and we are getting closer and closer to the confrontation between the Muslims and Quraysh at the Battle of Badr. And so far, in the past three or four lessons, we've been tracing the developments that led to the movements of Abu Sufyan and the Muslims and the Meccans, which will ultimately culminate in this battle we know as the Battle of Badr on a day in which Allah Ta'ala called it the day of Furqan, the day of the criteria, the distinction, the sharp contrast between Haq and Batil, where the two were confronted in a very clear way with a very decisive victory given to Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the Muslims. Last week we ended with a discussion on the Shura, of the Prophet ﷺ with the companions. Allah Ta'ala instructs His beloved ﷺ and seek their counsel in the matter, consult with them in the matter. And so the Prophet ﷺ consulted with the Muslims in the lead up to the Battle of Badr. And we see that there's actually two consultations. One concerns choosing between the caravan of Abu Sufyan or confronting the Meccans who had made their way north. And the second shura concerns solidifying or verifying the support of the Ansar for the Prophet ﷺ outside of Medina. And we'll see that today. So he had this shura, and the scholars of Sirah say that there was uh, some apprehension, there was some worry, and there was wondering on the part of the Prophet ﷺ about whether or not the Ansar themselves would defend him outside of the city of Medina. Did they only understand their role to be receiving him in the city and protecting him in the city of Medina and that their defense would be of any attack against him while he is in the city of Medina or did it apply to anything taking place inside or outside of Medina? That was the central question. So some of the Ansar were expressing their concerns. They're looking at the facts on the ground and looking at the material possessions of Quraysh, meaning the weaponry, the manpower, the horses and the camels and the material resources they had that they would be bringing into the battle. Compared to the Muslims at 313, who are lightly armed. And by lightly armed, we mean swords, some bows and arrows, perhaps some spears, but not heavy armor. Some had armor, some did not. And they had two horses in the whole group. And the camels were about 70, divided amongst them by three or four. So there were some apprehensions. And we see that in that initial shura, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu spoke up. And then Umar radiallahu anhu spoke up. And of course they voiced their support. 
And then we find the voice of Miqdad ibn Amr. Now Miqdad ibn Amr was not a Meccan, nor was he a Medinan. He was not from Mecca or from Medina, he was from Banu Zuhra. And he was not an Ansari, I actually misspoke last week, Sabaqul Lisan. He was not an Ansari, he was actually one of those who embraced Islam in the Meccan period and faced lots of persecution from Quraysh. But he was a recent arrival in Medina shortly before this expedition that turns into the Battle of Badr. So he has history, but he's still a recent arrival in Medina as a muhajir. And shortly after that, he's out now with the Muslims and with the Prophet ﷺ. So Muqdad ibn Amr has the opportunity to speak as someone from Banu Zuhra. And he says, Ya Rasulullah, Go forth to what Allah has shown you, for we are with you. By Allah, we will not say to you, as Bani Israel said to Musa, فَذْهَبْ أَنْتَ وَرَبُّكَ فَقَاتِلَا إِنَّهَا هُنَا قَاعِدُونَ When they said to Musa salam, Go, you and your Lord, and the two of you fight while we sit here. That is what Allah Ta'ala says about the words of Bani Israel. And Miqdad ibn Amr says, We will not say to you what Bani Israel said to Musa salam. Instead, we say to you, Go forth bi barakatillah. Go forth with the blessings of your Lord and your Lord's support. And we will fight on your right. And we will fight on your left. And we will fight in front of you. And we will fight behind you. So he is voicing this support under all circumstances. And this would not be the last discussion that the Prophet ﷺ has with the Muslims, as we'll soon see. But this is the shura that he has with him regarding the matter of pursuing the caravan of Abu Sufyan or instead dealing with the Meccans head on who are making their way close to Badr. So at this stage, maybe you could say there's a 50-50 chance. But as the events unfold, they very quickly see that it's no longer going to be 50-50. It's 60-40 and then it's 70-30 and then eventually it's 100%. Is going to be a confrontation and it has nothing to do with the caravan it's going to be a direct confrontation with Quraysh as we'll see so there were at this stage still some hopes among the Muslims that they would catch the caravan of Abu Sufyan before they would encounter this army in their mind that is of course the easiest option it is the easiest option if there's 40 people in the caravan and they're lightly armed, and you're 313, it's not even a question of victory. It's easy. Because they're not going to really put up a fight against such overwhelming force. So they wanted to catch this caravan before the army arrived. And they were hoping that they would get word of the caravan getting close enough to where they could raid that caravan and take these things. So at this stage, the Prophet ﷺ had camped out at a place not too far from Badr and with the Muslims. And the Seerah sources tell us that he, along with Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu, went hand in hand by themselves to the area of Badr. And they want to go there to ask about Quraysh. Remember we said last week that people overheard these two girls talking 
about settling a debt when the caravans arrive. So the people, they're communicating with the Bedouins and the others around about the movements of different caravans and people. So they're going to see what's the word. Are they near? Where are they? So the Prophet along with Abu Bakr anhu, they go to this area near Badr and they encounter a Bedouin. And uh, I don't remember the Bedouin's name, but they basically, they asked him if the Quraysh were around, if there's any information he can provide to understand if the army is near. Now the narration says that the man wasn't forthcoming. He didn't initially want to share anything uh, because he's a neutral party. You know, he's standing, he's not with the Quraysh and he's not with the Muslims, but he knows what's up. He knows that the Muslims are over there and you know, he knows they're somewhere. Is he going to share information? And if he does, with whom? Who is he sharing it with? Is he sharing it with the Muslims? Is he sharing it with uh, Quraysh? So he says, he says, who are you? And the Prophet ﷺ says, if you tell us any information you have about the army, I'll tell you where I'm from. And the man said, okay. So he's assuming here that he's probably with neither, therefore is a neutral party too. He says, yes, they're over on the other side and they're making their way. He says, now who are you? Where are you from? When the, when the Arabs ask, who are you? They're not just asking for your name, right? If I go to Taha in the middle of the desert in a tribal area and I say, I'm not going to say, what is your name? And you say, Taha. Okay, nice to meet you, Taha. Is that only what I want to know? No, I want to know more. What do I want to know? I want to know where you're from because if I know where you're from, I know your tribe, I might even know your clan, and I know my position with you vis-a-vis -vis my tribe's position with your tribe. So he tells him, and the Prophet wasallam is asked, where are you from? And he says, min ma, min ma. This, this man, this Bedouin man, was thinking that perhaps he's referring to a distant tribe closer to Iraq, the tribe of Ma. But the Prophet ﷺ means he is from water. Min kulli shay'in hay. Allah created everything from water. That's what he means. His material origins from Ma, from water. And this is what the scholars call tawriya, right? It's you're telling the truth, but it gives a different impression to the listener. Right? And especially in cases of battle, this is something to be used. Now the Prophet ﷺ also says, Al-Harbu right? War is deception. And that's echoed in the ancient writings on military strategy. Sun Tzu says the exact same thing. But even in the case uh, war is deception, even in that case, he never told uh, anything that could ever be called a lie. Even in the case of warfare, the tawriya is not a lie. It's a true statement but it's for a purpose of giving this person the impression of one thing and you intend another. So he has now this intelligence that Quraysh, they're, they're very close. So he goes back to the camp. Remember the Muslims are camped out on the other side. He goes back to the camp and then he sends out Ali, Zubair and Sa'ad with some others to go to the well of Badr or the wells of Badr we should say to see if any of the army or any of the caravan of Abu Sufyan had come to the wells to draw water. I sent a picture in our WhatsApp group of the actual map of the battle. 
It's very hard to picture this when you don't have the image. The best way to explain the Battle of Badr is to actually go to Badr and walk through the scene on the outlying area, Al-Udwat al-Dunya, Wal-Udwat al-Quswa, Aqanqil, in these places. If you walk the area, you can see where they were at each stage of the journey. So they go back to the campsite where the Muslims are. He sends Ali and Zubair and Sa'ad with some others to the well of Badr to see if either the caravan of Abu Sufyan arrived and drew water or if the army of Quraysh arrived and drew water. So they're going on a, a, more, uh, a more particular fact-finding mission. We know that they're all near, but how near are they? So they go out there to do this. They set out to the wells, and now the Prophet ﷺ goes, and he is in salat. It's just a period of private devotions between him and his Lord in salat. Rak'ah after rak'ah, lengthy du'a in these salawat that he's praying, in this period praying for victory. And we'll hear more about what was going on in those private moments too, because those are narrated as well. So as he is praying privately, and Ali and Zubair and Sa'ad and some others go out to the wells to see what's going on, they get to the wells, and what do you know? They find some water carriers that are of Quraysh. Now water carriers, you know, if water, carriers, if water carrying was an occupation, it would be minimum wage in our society. In that time, they could have been slaves. And if they weren't slaves, they were from a lower class. It's a very low-paying job. Your job is to go out and fetch the water. You're not going to be among the noblemen of Quraysh doing that job. So Ali and Zubair and Sa'ad and the others get there. They find these two men who were water bearers for Quraysh. And the names given are Aslam and Arad Abu Yassar. So what do they do? They took them as prisoners. They brought them back to the camp. What is the Prophet them doing at this time? He's still praying. He's still praying. It did take a long time. This is not a long journey to get to the well. It's on foot. And they come back and they have these two prisoners. The Prophet is in Salat. And now some of the companions are trying to get more intelligence from these two water carriers. Because if they're from Quraysh and they're fetching the water, that means they know the equipment and the numbers and who's there and who's not there. They can provide this information to give the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims a more vivid picture of the battlefield conditions when they eventually confront them. So they get these prisoners there and they ask them, who are you with? Because there's only two possibilities. These water carriers, we know they're from Quraysh, right? We know that. But at that time, they're asking them, who are you with? Because they're either water carriers for Quraysh or they're water carriers for Abu Sufyan, right? They're trying to determine who is here. Is this from the people of Abu Sufyan or is it from Quraysh? They say we're from Quraysh. But some of the Muslims didn't like that answer. Why wouldn't they like that answer? Because if that's the true answer, that means that the people nearest to the wells 
are those 1,000 or so people that they're going to confront. That means the inevitability of battle is before their eyes. If it's water carriers for Abu Sufyan, what does that mean? It means, oh, we can raid the caravan and get back home. Easy pickings. So when they said, we're from Quraysh, some of the companions didn't like this answer. So some of them started to slap them around. I want the real answer. You're not telling the truth. And they slapped them around to the point where they said, okay, okay, yeah, we're, we're water carriers of Abu Sufyan. That wasn't true. And we know that this wasn't exactly torture, but you know, if you smack someone around enough, they'll say whatever you want them to say. That's why those techniques are not really effective for getting real intelligence. So they said, yeah, we're with Abu Sufyan. And now the Muslims are feeling some relief. And then the Prophet ﷺ finishes his prayer. And then he comes to them and he says, when they told you the truth, you hit them. And when they lied to you, you left them alone. I mean, he knew that they are not water carriers for Abu Sufyan. And instead they are for Quraysh. So he now took over this role of getting the intelligence from these two men. And he asked them, by Allah, uh, he asked them uh, how many they are and who they are. These are the two questions. So they said, by Allah, when asked where they are, by Allah, wallahi, they are behind that hill that you see in Al-Udwatul Qusra. I'm leaving that term untranslated because it's in the Quran and it's more it's not a specific place by name it's more of a a description of a place relative to the Muslims position right so the furthest versus the nearest in terms of the hills and the valleys and whatnot so they said by Allah they're behind that hill that you see in Al-Udwatul Qusra and the the dune the sand dune or dune Aqanqal and then he asked them how many are they and they said, oh, they are abundant in number and great in valor. They didn't give him any numbers, no specifics. Either because they're keeping that information, they're, they're giving some information and retaining the rest, or they honestly don't know the exact number. You know, if they're uneducated uh, water carriers, what's the chances of them knowing the exact numbers and these kinds of things? At any rate, they said, they're great in number and great in valor. So the Prophet ﷺ then changed his line of questioning to get the answer he needed. He asked them, how many animals are slaughtered per day? So they recognized that. Why would they recognize that? Because we can assume that if they're water carriers, they're probably slaves. And if they're slaves, they're probably doing more than just carrying water. They're probably also dealing with uh, preparing the animals if you're slaughtering the camels of course you have to gut them and you have to strip the meat and process it and do all that stuff they're probably very intimately involved in preparing the food which means they know how many animals are being killed so he asked them how many animals are being slaughtered each day and they said one day nine are killed and one day ten are killed hearing this the Prophet ﷺ said they are 900 to 1,000 men. This means that there's about 100 people per camel. And that's pretty accurate. That's pretty accurate. Um, in, uh, when I was studying in Yemen, uh, one institution, we had about 
Yeah, it was about 100 people, about 100 people. And uh, someone from the UK wanted to send money there for the students to buy a camel uh, and have it all cooked up. And yeah, there was enough for us, like a good, nice meal, one, one per person from one camel. So that's about accurate. So he says 900 to 1,000 men. So he's right. And then the Prophet ﷺ asked for more intelligence. He asked for the names of the, the, the Sadat of Quraysh, meaning the, the leaders, the notables of Quraysh. So it's important to know who's there because that will tell you a lot about their preparation, how serious they are. And so this man, or these two men, begin to share the names of the different notables of Quraysh and they named virtually everyone, virtually everyone. So name, and the hadith narrations in the seerah mention them by name, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one after the other among the notables of Quraysh. So the Prophet Sallallahu upon hearing this, he says, indeed Mecca has sent you, sent to you her dearest and most precious sons. Mecca has sent to you her dearest and most precious sons. And what you find, just cross-reference these names with the Meccan period. So go to the Meccan period and look at these names and you see that every single one of them played very key roles in the persecution of the Muslims and the Prophet So these are not just people who had no hand in that, who just happened to be people of nobility, they were directly responsible for all of the persecution and the oppression, the banishment, the boycotts, the taunting, the verbal abuse, the physical abuse, you name it. These were the key people responsible. So the Prophet tells the Muslims that Mecca has sent you her dearest and most precious sons. If this victory, if this battle turns into a victory and they are dealt with, it would be like having the most influential people of a society being on the battlefield and then losing the battle. What happens to the city, right? It becomes so much more easier to be victorious in that city. So we see this playing out. By this stage, it has now dawned on everyone that it's no longer a 50-50 chance of getting the caravan of Abu Sufyan or seeing the army. It's now very clear that the battle is inevitable. And Allah Ta'ala mentions in Surah Al-Anfal how this became a bit of a test for some of the believers. And we talked about that last week as well. Because think about it. If all of these Sadat, all of these leaders and notables of Quraysh are there, they have all the money, they have all this power, all this influence in society. Do you think that as noblemen of Quraysh, people of great wealth and influence, they're just going to ride their camels and horses to Badr and have a single sword? No, <laughs> they have the resources. They're gonna bring extra food. They're gonna bring supplies. They're gonna bring uh, proper armor, helmets, swords and shields and bows and arrows and spears and lances, you name it. If you have that kind of money and you know you're going to a battle, 
You see, the Muslims didn't know there was going to be a battle. They just came lightly armed. They know they're going to a battle. That was their intention. And they have the resources. So the Muslims hearing now that Quraysh are right over there. And all of these notables were there. And that means they brought, they must have brought all of this equipment. They didn't just come like us. So it's us. We're outnumbered. And we're out-equipped. Right? You know, they're, if they're bringing all of this and, we, and they're outnumbering us, this is a serious, a serious confrontation. And there's, there's a serious concern about if we're going to make it out of this. So Muslims, some of the Muslims were a little disturbed by this possibility now becoming a reality. So there's worries. And the Prophet wasallam knew about these worries and anxieties. And he also knew that he had to rouse the spirits of the Muslims and prepare them for battle. That's the role of a leader. The leader leads from the front by example, and the leader is also responsible for rousing his troops and instilling discipline and strengthening morale and giving them a fighting spirit. And Allah says this in the Quran, he mentions this as a command to the Prophet Right? This is the divine command. So one of the ways he rouses them for battle and raises their spirits is, SubhanAllah, there's that desire to do it. And in that desire, Allah Ta'ala also reveals to him matters of the ghaib that pertains to what's going to happen. And he communicates that ghaib and that becomes the means of rousing the spirits of the Muslims. Right? It's one thing to rouse them with words of encouragement. It's another thing to rouse them with words that come as a form of wahi about unseen matters that are going to unfold the next day. And that's what happens. The Prophet ﷺ speaks to the believers and he tells them the names of every single person that's going to be slain the next day. If you hear, put yourself there, you know, maybe you have your little sword and that's it. You know, your feet are tired from doing all this walking. You don't have enough water supplies, you know. And then you hear him point out, the, mention the names of those who will be slain and also pointing out where their bodies are going to be found. Uh, this person is going to be here, right? The hadith says, he says, Wallahi, Umayyah will be killed over here, and Shayba will be killed over here, and Utbah will be killed over here, and Abu Jahl will be killed over there. He's pointing it out. And you know that whatever he says is from Wahi. He does not speak from any caprice or desire. What he says is Wahi revealed. So he encourages them this way. He also wants to get reassurances. And here comes that second kind of shura. And the shura is not so much to make a decision about doing something or not doing something. It's more of a, a shura of, maybe you could say, getting a, a pulse of the enthusiasm and the support of the people. He knows that is present with the muhajirun. There's no question about that. But there is a question with regards to the ansar because when they agreed to receive the Prophet ﷺ, when they pledged their support to him in the two pledges of Al-Aqaba, 
Was that restricted to Medina? Or did that apply to anywhere, even outside of Medina? Right? That, that's the central question here. And when he called for that meeting with them, we have this very beautiful and somewhat lengthy, eloquent speech given by Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh radiallahu anhu. And when you hear this speech, you understand a bit about Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh and why he has so many manaqib, so many virtues narrated in the hadith. And, and why the Prophet ﷺ was so pained uh, over his death when he says that the Arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shook at the death of Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, right? So Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, who's from the Ansar, and he's one of the chief of the Ansar, he stands up to speak. This is that critical moment to gauge where are the Ansar? Who's going to speak on their behalf? It's going to be Sa'ad. So Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh radiallahu ta'ala anhu wa arda, he stands up and he says, it's as though you intend us, Ya Rasulullah. Meaning it's as though you are asking about us, the Ansar, and where we are with regards to all of this, outside of Medina. He says, Ya Rasulullah, it's as though you intend us. And he says, yes indeed. And so Sa'ad says, we have believed in you and we have trusted you and we have witnessed that your message is the haqq, the truth. And we've given you our oath and our promise to hear and to obey. Perhaps, Ya Rasulullah, you fear that the Ansar do not wish to assist you and that they do not see this as their duty unless they see an enemy in their own homes amongst their children and wives. I will speak on behalf of the Ansar and I will answer for them this question. So here comes the answer. He says, Ya Rasulullah, imdi ala barakatillah. Proceed wherever you wish with the blessings of Allah. Reside wherever you wish. Connect with whomever you wish and cut off ties with whomever you wish, make peace with whomever you wish, and go to war with whomever you wish. Take of our wealth whatever you wish, and give us whatever you wish. Surely what you take from us pleases us more than what you leave for us. He says, whatever you decide, Ya Rasulullah, our decision is your decision. And our affairs will follow your affairs, what you decide. Go forth, Ya Rasulullah, to what you want. فَنَحْنُ مَعَكُمْ We are with you. By Allah, وَالَّذِي بَعَثَكَ بِالْحَقِّ The one who sent you with the truth. Were you to face us with this sea. What sea is he talking about? Where are they? The Red Sea. So to their left. If you're going south, it's to the, to the right. If you're going north, it's to the left. Were you to face us with this sea and then enter it, we would enter it with you. Not one man amongst us would hold back. And we are not loath to face our enemy with you tomorrow. For we are steadfast in war. We are true in combat with the enemy. May Allah show you of us what will please you and be the coolness of your eye. That's a saying in Arabic, right? Qurratul Ayn is, you know, that thing that brings you great joy 
and expands your heart with warmth and good feelings. He says, go forth with the blessing of Allah. This was a very eloquent speech and it set the tone for the way of the Ansar for the rest of their days. And this is why the Prophet says, Min al-Iman hubbul Ansar. It is from Iman to have love for the Ansar. And it's from hypocrisy to have any animosity or dislike of the Ansar. Right? And that's actually true. The scholars say that that's true in a very specific sense for the Ansar of the Aus and the Khazraj. And it's generally true for people who are Ansar even after the generation of the Ansar. Anyone who gives victory and aid to the deen of Allah, serving the deen of Allah, who counts as a, among the Ansar in a general sense, uh, it's a sign of iman that you love people who do that. And it's a sign of hypocrisy if you have hatred for people who are helping the deen of Allah. Right? So this sets the tone. And hearing this, Rasulullah was filled with joy. And he says to them, to the Ansar as well as the others, march forth in the name of Allah and receive glad tidings. For Allah has promised me one of the two groups. And by Allah, it is as though I am looking at where they will fall. And then they made their way to Badr. So this is all in the lead up to that confrontation. Where is everyone right now? The Muslims are at Badr on one side. Quraysh are at Al-Udwatul Quswa at the dune of Aqanqal in that area. And Allah mentions this in the Quran in Surah Al-Anfal. He mentions the locations. He says, إِذْ أَنْتُمْ بِالْعُدْوَةِ الدُّنْيَا وَهُمْ بِالْعُدْوَةِ الْقُصْوَى وَالْرَكْبُ أَسْفَلَ مِنْكُمْ وَلَوْ تَوَاعَدْتُمْ لَاخْتَلَفْتُمْ فِي الْمِعَادِ وَلَكِنْ لِيَقْضِيَ اللَّهُ أَمْرًا كَالَ مَفْعُولًا لِيَهْلِكَ مَنْ هَلَكَ عَنْ بَيِّنَةٍ وَيَحْيَى مَنْ حَيَّ عَنْ بَيِّنَةٍ وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ لَسَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ He says, recall when you were on the nearer bank. That's how we're translating the Udwatul Dunya. So Dunya, we, as we said in Jumu'ah, means dun, right? Close, lower. So the Udwatul Dunya is the nearer bank. So in these slopes and hills, relative to the wells, it is on the nearer bank, and they are on the Udwatul Qoswa, which is right. It's, it's the further bank, and the caravan was below you. Had you planned for this meeting, you would have disagreed on the timing. But Allah was to carry out a predetermined matter so that those who perish would perish with clear evidence and those who would survive would survive by clear evidence and indeed Allah is all hearing, all knowing. So they are positioned relatively close. Quraysh are positioned relatively close, just obviously in a different area at this time. And where is Abu Sufyan in all of this? The narrations say that it wasn't long before Abu Sufyan received the letter that Quraysh were nearby and were a thousand strong. And we mentioned last week that he was telling them they can go. He felt he was reasonably secure. Well, now he knows that they're nearby. He's feeling okay. He's not in the vicinity. The Quraysh are actually between the Muslims and the caravan. So he felt safe. 
Uh, we do have one narration, though. In uh, Ibn Hisham's Sirah, he mentions a, ri- a riwayah that when the Quraysh found out that the two water carriers were taken as prisoner, because obviously they didn't come back with the water, so they sent them for water, and hey, where's the water? So eventually they have to send some others to see what's going on, and they discover, oh, Aslam and Arid Abu Yasar were taken as prisoner by these Muslims. So they get back to the Quraysh camp and they tell the Quraysh. And the, the narration says that when the news broke out in the camp of Quraysh, they broke out into this absolute com- commotion. It was pandemonium. Uh, or we would say they basically freaked out when they found out that the two water carriers were taken as prisoner. Because you know, in all of this, they're making their way. They, have, they know the Muslims are close. They just don't know how close yet. Mm, now they know. If they're close enough to grab their two water carriers and go off with them, this is close enough to be a battle. So they were in pandemonium when they found out. So when the Prophet ﷺ arrived at that area of Badr, he stopped and he dismounted from the camel and went to the first well he came upon. Because the, the well of Badr is not just a single well. At that time, it was several smaller wells in different parts of that area. So when they made their way to the area, he dismounted and goes to the first well. And when he's there, the companion, whose name is Hubab ibn Mundir, radiallahu anhu, he asked the question. Because you know, this is another example of picturing something in your head that you haven't seen. Imagine a, a kind of valley where you have multiple wells and one is positioned here and others are positioned here and here and here. He stops at this one. And Hubab ibn Mundir, he says, Ya Rasulullah, you know, this particular place where you're dismounting at this particular well. He says, has this particular place dismounting here, has it been revealed to you from Allah as the only place we can stop? And we can't go beyond it? Or is it just a matter of opinion or war strategy, thinking just to stop here? And the Prophet ﷺ said, it's a matter of opinion, a matter of war strategy. Hubab, he has experience in these matters. And he says, in that case, Ya Rasulullah, this is not the best place to halt. Let us continue until we reach the well nearest to the enemy. Stop there and stop the well up and build a cistern upon it. So you're basically, you're filling up the well nearest to them. You're rerouting the other waters, the other wells, so to get to the water nearest to you. This is the suggestion. Let us continue till we get to the well nearest to them, fill it up, and build a cistern upon it, fill it with water so we can drink, and they cannot. This is a very basic military strategy. Military strategy is not just about wielding a sword and shooting arrows. It's about controlling the supply chains that are going to fuel and feed the enemy. So if you know your enemy's over there, and the only way they can survive is by water, and that water's right here, and you have control of the water, you won, or you... It's, it's almost assumed that you've won because you can hold out and deny them those resources. So that was the idea. And so the Prophet ﷺ, he says, your opinion is sound. And then 
he went with some men to the nearest well to the enemy area and he halted there and they stopped up that well they built a cistern upon it which is basically rerouting water and they filled it with water and each man filled his water and his drinking vessels and he drank from it and this is what he did now what's going on here is Rasulullah is modeling leadership how to lead among a group of people he's also modeling cooperation and shura and taking the best advice the spot that he stopped at at first was not tashri'ah it was not legislation it was not revealed by wahi commanding that he stopped there so that's not legislation which means that it was not a prophetic command to do so but pay very close attention to hubab's uh, line of questioning Hubab radiallahu anhu didn't assume that what the Prophet did was opinion. That wasn't the primary assumption. He first had to ask, is this wahi or is it something else? Because the assumption is that whatever he's doing is wahi. Right? That's a key difference between people who like to pick and choose things from the sunnah that they like and discard the things that they don't. Hubab is ready to assume that this was actually wahi. So he asked first. And that's because the asl, the default, is that whatever he says is wahi. But this was not a legislative command. And in him stopping there, there is a wisdom in teaching the community how to lead and cooperate and use the expert opinion of people who have specialties in these matters. So that's a, that's a broader lesson there. So they filled these small wells. And at this stage, Sa'ad bin Mu'adh, he says, Ya Rasulullah, why don't we make for you a special khayma? You know, these little pavilions or tents. Why don't we make for you a special tent where you can monitor the battle? The Prophet ﷺ agreed, and the Sahaba chose an area where he could see the battle from multiple vantage points they built this as a kind of military headquarters there on the plains of Badr and as night fell Quraysh were on the horizon on the other side they knew the Muslims were on this side the Muslims knew the Quraysh were on that side all the intelligence is gathered everyone knows this is going to occur so this is where we are the now to get to the actual confrontation we have the filling of the water, the filling of the, the wells, and filling the water from the cistern. Let's just go back one day and then move forward slightly to explain some of the things that were unfolding. The day before this, the Prophet ﷺ had camped at some distance from Badr, and they were in this valley that was actually an old dried up swamp. And the narrations say that the Muslims were camping there, their supplies were running thin, and they didn't have the best sleep. They're tired, they're running out of water, they slept in this dried up swamp, and they woke up thirsty, and some of the Muslims even woke up in a state of janaba, right? A lot of young men, and it is what it is, right? So they have janaba, but not even enough water to take ghusl. So, 
the arduous, the arduous journey, the dwindling supplies, the bad sleep, the lack of water, and some of them can't even take the ghusl, right? So there's a lot of stresses mounting. And at this stage, shaitan began to whisper to a number of people, saying, you know, look, they have all these supplies, all this stuff, and look what we're going through. You know, it's just these little ideas, these negative talk in their heads, just whispering things. So this is where they were the day before. Right? The Meccans had their camp set up at Udwatul Quswa. They're relatively close to the water. They could just go across, get water, and come back. The Muslims haven't gotten that close yet. So they're waking up in this state, in a state of Janaba for some of them. So they get closer you know, during that day, that difficult day the night from the night before. They get closer. They set up camp. And then at that very night, after a long, difficult day, they received a very beautiful gift. And that gift was in the form of rainfall. Think about it. If you're running out of water and you get rainfall, it's nice. It's not, the rainfall will fill the crevices. It will quickly become a lot of water they can use for drinking and for bathing and so on. So they have this water. They drank from it. They made ghusl. And the, the law describes the, the rain in the Qur'an as being the means of washing away the wasawis, the whisperings of shaitan, these, these negative suggestions being put into their heads. And it also becomes a gift in another way. It becomes a tactical gift. How so? How many of you have walked in a desert? Imagine sprinting in a desert. How fast do you think you can run in a desert filled with sand? You're not going to get very fast. Get very far, you won't go very fast because the sand is just, it's so thick, it slows you down, right? So if you've been in the desert, you know that with light rainfall, the sand becomes hardened. But is there a, is there a point at which there could be too much rain that would make that sand muddy? and difficult to walk through? Absolutely. But where the Muslims were positioned that night, the rain was enough to make the ground very firm. This means that when the battle happens, they have a firm foothold, literally and metaphorically. Literally, because it's so firm, they can run, they can sprint, they can get around very easily. That same rainfall fell where the Quraysh are, but due to the geographical position on Al-Qusua, they have to go up this big sand dune, this big hill to get to Badr, to, to, to the wells. And because it's falling on the side, it's all muddy and slippery and slick, and it, they can't really get up that very easily with themselves or their animals without great fatigue. So they are being set up for failure just by the nature of the terrain change through the rain. And the Muslims are being set up for victory by the terrain change through that rain. So it was a great gift in many different ways. And we'll see how that plays out. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this incident in Surah Al-Anfal, which we said last week is really a recounting of Badr and the lessons of Badr before, during, and after. And he says... 
إذ يغشيكم النعاس آمنة منه وينزل عليكم من السماء ماء ليطهركم به ويذهب عنكم رجز الشيطان وليربط على قلوبكم ويثبت به الأقدام He made drowsiness overcome you So they're tired, the rain comes and they get sleepy How many of you would sleep through rain? If you're outside, you're getting rained on, you don't really sleep But they were drowsy and the rain came Drowsiness overcame you as a security from him. Amanatan minhu. So Allah Ta'ala ensured that they got a nice solid sleep the day before the battle. They didn't wake up with only one or two hours of sleep because of the rainfall and the stress and the adrenaline, the anxiety of impending warfare. Think about this. You're tired, you're traveling all this time, you don't have much supplies left. You're stressed, you're worried about what's going to happen, you're outnumbered. You think, how, how do you think your sleep would be that night, the night before the battle, in all of those challenges? But despite that, Allah says that He sent down this rain and He sent down drowsiness as a means of security from Him. And He sent down upon you water from the sky to purify and cleanse you with it. And that purification is... Uh, literal, they can take the ghusl now, those who had to take the ghusl, and it is, uh, I, I wouldn't say figurative, I would just say it is uh, ma'nawi, you know, you have hissi and ma'nawi, hissi is in the physical sense, ma'nawi is in the spiritual sense, so he sends down this rain to cleanse you with it, and to rid you of shaitan's rijis, right, this uh, pollution or this defilement, and to fortify your hearts and strengthen your foothold. Listen to the language. Allah Ta'ala says, وَلِيَرْبِطَ عَلَىٰ قُلُوبِكُمْ وَيُثَبِّتَ بِهِ الْأَقْدَمِ So when Allah says to make your feet firm, in this verse, it means literally making them firm. It doesn't mean in, in the first sense. It doesn't just mean uh, being firm in a metaphorical way because that's mentioned in the previous phrase. Right, to bind your hearts, to fortify your hearts. So it's already mentioned there. So now this is how Allah describes the event. There's a narration from Imam Ahmad in his Musnad, which says that the Prophet ﷺ spent that entire night awake in Salat. So while the Muslims are overcome with sleep, the Prophet ﷺ is awake through the whole night. He is, of course, stronger than them. But he is spending the night awake in dua. And the hadith mentions it was very uh, a night of lengthy sajda. And one of the prayers transmitted in this hadith, he would say, Oh Allah, if you cause this group, the Muslims, to be eradicated, defeated, then you will not be worshipped on earth after tomorrow. These are the Muslims. These are the people with Tawheed. Right? This is it. Right? And Imam Ahmed also records from Imam Ali radiallahu anhu wa karamallahu wajha who said that Imam Ali says, if you could have only seen us on the night of Badr, every one of us was sound asleep. Except for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam who was praying behind a tree and making dua until the morning. Does that mean that he had no sleep at all? Maybe he did have a little bit of a nap, 
but the majority of the night was spent in salat, asking Allah for victory. And there's a beautiful thing here, a beautiful lesson. Didn't he tell them that Allah has guaranteed victory? Didn't he point out where each of the notables of Quraysh would be slain? Did he have any doubt that they were going to be victorious? Who promised him the victory? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yet he still spends the night in prayer asking for salvation and security and for victory because that is the abd, right? The abd, Allah ta'ala says uh, that if you do this, then you will be forgiven. You do that and you are secure that you have been forgiven, but you still ask Allah to accept it, right? You're told that whoever goes to Jumu'ah between one Jumu'ah and the next, the minor sins are forgiven. You still ask Allah to forgive your minor sins. You don't rest on that security. You still have the ubudiyah. So we learn that from this. So they get the restful sleep. They're refreshed with rain. They are readied for battle. And Fajr time comes. At Fajr time, the Prophet ﷺ is the one to wake everyone up. He was awake before everyone else. And he wakes them up saying, As-salat, as-salat. This was the 17th of Ramadan in the second year after the Hijrah. So after Fajr, the Prophet ﷺ aligned them in rows. And from this and other narrations, we learn another sunnah practice is that he would tend to begin the battles at Fajr. Right? So he, in the morning after Fajr, the Prophet ﷺ, he aligns them in rows and he inspects them. Now we know he did that earlier right outside of Medina, but that was for a different reason. That was to take out any of them who were too young to go on the trip. This time is to inspect the troops, to see that their gear is uh, squared away, that they are ready, that they have everything they need, to make sure that everyone uh, knows where they are to be and what they are to do. And, and at this stage, as they're aligned in rows, he's also teaching them uh, how they're going to fight and when they're going to fire and when they're not going to fire. So this is where we get that hadith of Sawad ibn Ghaziyah, the one we mentioned before. That wasn't on the outskirts of Medina. That was here where he was out of the row somewhat, jutting out, and then he got poked by the end of the arrow shaft. Not the tip, but the, the end point. And then he says, Ah, Rasulullah. And then he says, I demand retribution, qisas. And then the Prophet ﷺ agreed to it, much to the, the consternation of the Sahaba. How could you dare ask for retribution? And then he lifts his qamis and then Sawad kisses his stomach. This was just a moment for him to have that access. So at this stage, he's telling them to refrain from fighting until he gives the command to do so first. And then he tells them how to fight. The hadith in Bukhari says, if they are in your vicinity, fire your arrows and shoot your arrows only as they draw near to you so you don't waste them by shooting at a distance. And do not draw your swords until they are upon you. So you only fire when you have a clear shot and they're close enough that the shot will likely strike its target. Don't waste arrows shooting so far off to unlikely, sh unlikely shots you won't make. 
And if you draw your swords, don't draw them ahead of time. Draw them when you get near. And so he's giving some basic instructions on how to do it. So now, after giving these instructions, the Prophet ﷺ returns to his tent. And it is not long after this that they begin to assemble and Quraysh begin to assemble. And we have the beginning of the confrontation in the Mubarazah the individual combat one man against one man that sets the tone for the rest of the battle which we begin talking about in earnest next week insha'Allah the battle itself unfolds Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala